me, guys. No place I'd rather be right now, I'll tell you that much. Good to worship with you guys again this Sunday. Thank you for letting me do this, uh, this great privilege of preaching the Word. Thank you. I love doing it. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 19. Split this chapter up into two messages, um, I hope appropriately, as I'll mention to you, um, we got last week, Jesus returned from the perspective of the believer. This week we get Jesus returned from the perspective of the unbeliever. So let's read chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. <clears throat> Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged on their flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Heavenly Father. There are some in this room today that need to be scared by this verse. Lord, I pray that if it need be to bring them to saving faith in Jesus Christ, that they would have nightmares about this passage and that they would flee by your grace the wrath to come, and it is coming. We thank you, Father, that in Jesus Christ, those who fear you and trust you will never experience this side of Jesus, will never experience his wrath, will never feel the sword that comes from his mouth. Thank you 
Lord, speak to us powerfully, not just in word, but in demonstration of the Holy Spirit this morning. We need you. Even those who don't know it this morning, don't acknowledge it, we need you. Have mercy on us, O God. Fall fresh on us, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First 10 verses, return of Christ from the perspective of a believer, and it's amazing. It's a wedding feast. We're going to eat, we're going to drink, we're going to sing, we're going to dance in the presence of God for all eternity. But this week, the second coming from the perspective of an unbeliever, and it's terrifying. John gets from the Lord different perspectives on the same events. There is only one last battle. But in chapter 16, it's Armageddon, and we get a perspective on it. In chapter 20, we're going to get another perspective. Gog, Magog, gathered to, to battle the Lord. Chapter 19, we get another perspective. Beasts, the kings of the earth, the armies, the raid against the Lord are, are gathered for battle. It's like when you're watching a game on TV and you get three replays of the same play. Same event. I got U.S. Open on my mind. So, you know, Djokovic backhand winner down the line, and then you get the replay, the zoom in on his face. Why do all tennis players make noises like that? It's strange. You know, and then you get the replay of the line. So the ball clips the line, so they zoom in on that. And then you get a, a replay of zoom out and the crowd erupting at the winner. Revelation is like that. You're getting same events, especially when we get to the climax, these last few chapters, from different angles. You're getting replays. It's a privilege. God didn't have to give us all this, but He does, so that we would understand its meaning and our faith would be encouraged. Same events, same plays, different angles. There's one return of Christ. There's one Resurrection of the dead. There's one judgment. And there's one new creation. And I'm guessing the Jesus we zoom in on today is not the Jesus that you grew up with. Yeah? I grew up in the church and I never saw a felt board with this Jesus on it in Sunday school. You know what I'm saying? If you're church folk, what are the two Jesuses that you got? Baby Jesus. Sweet, white, European, baby Jesus up on the felt board. And who is the adult Jesus? Feathered hair, adult Jesus. Just a beautiful beard, um, kind of a smoldering look, you know. If only I had an example I could point you to nearby, but it's fine. You can imagine it. Kind of like a Zoolander Jesus is like what we saw. That's what we got. I've never gone into anyone's house and seen this Jesus in a painting or on the mantle. Eyes of flaming fire, sword coming out of his mouth, robe drenched in blood, he's dirty. I've never seen that. Can you imagine? You have somebody over for dinner. What is that? 
oh, that's Jesus when he returns to judge the wicked and destroy evil forever. Did you want some potatoes or what are you having to drink? I've never seen it in a Christian bookstore on a coffee mug, Revelation 19. Um, maybe some of you can solve that. Young people, please solve that. Uh, we need some more biblically offensive Christian merch is what we need. Because guess what, guys? The gospel is offensive. Jesus is offensive, especially to wealthy, suburban, religious people. They can't stand passages like this. I don't want to hear anything about that. I don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. How could a loving God do this? And yet, this is the real Jesus. This is the Jesus that we need. You need the whole Christ. Half a Christ is no Christ at all. You need the king of glory and of grace. You need the warrior king and the tender shepherd. You need the triumphant Lord and the suffering servant. You need it all. If you have one without the other, you have a false god. You have an idol. So be careful that your view of Jesus Christ is the biblical view, not a cultural view and not even a Christian cultural one, which is certainly what I grew up with. Cute little baby. Handsome looking man. A loving Jesus who won't or can't destroy evil, is not worthy of your worship. He's not. The real Jesus is coming to make holy war on all that is wrong with this world. Praise God. Praise God. This passage is in the Bible. You don't think this makes a difference in your life? This is not just abstract theology, folks. This makes a difference in your life. If you know that justice is coming... You have the resources to live at peace now. If you know that justice is coming, you don't have to get even with the person who's just being a jerk to you. In your workplace, in your family, brothers and sisters, they never fight, so this doesn't apply to them. But if they did, you don't have to get even. You can entrust that act of wickedness that was done to you unto the Lord. Someone who has done evil to you. Jesus is going to take care of it. You don't have to get even. You don't have to social media slander ever. Well, that's not in the church. It's out there. Uh-huh. You don't have to. Jesus is going to handle it. You don't have to answer everything that everybody says about you. Jesus is going to handle it. You don't have to let a broken, frustrating, difficult world discourage you. Jesus is going to handle it. You don't have to be afraid of anything. Everything that has ever made you feel afraid, he is going to banish forever. Think about that. That feeling, that emotion, that sense of fear, whether it's fear of the future, fear of somebody else, fear of anything, you're never going to feel that again. Because baby Jesus isn't coming. 
the King of kings and Lord of lords is coming. Two points today. I think you can see them in the passage. First, Jesus' character at his coming, who he is, and Jesus' conduct at his coming, what he does. Okay, Essentially, who he is and what he does. So let's start with his character. And as we said, when we got this vision of the Son of Man in chapter 1, the description is not what Jesus looks like, really. It's what he is like. Not what he looks like literally, but what he is like in his character. So you need to imagine that. That's why it's here. Think about it. That will help you access the truth of his character. Verse 11, then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. Now, white in this case is not about purity as it often is in the book of Revelation. It's about a conquering king. Conquering kings in the ancient world, when they came triumphantly into town, they rode a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in, his, and in righteousness he judges and makes war, meaning you can trust his judgment. He always does what is right. Unlike even the best king, the best ruler, he always does what is right. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Pause. Jesus' moral vision, clear and consuming. Clear and consuming. You know that feeling when you get caught doing something wrong? Anybody ever had that feeling? I have. <clears throat> in seventh grade, I decided to cheat on a test, a math test in particular. Why? I don't know. I, I didn't like math. I didn't want to do math. I didn't want to study. And I knew I was going to be a pastor at age 12, so why did I need algebra, you know? It's like I knew it. I was a lazy sinner, that's why. My brain was not fully formed, obviously, because I decided to cheat by writing the answers on my hand. So I'm going like this, looking at my teacher. You know, it's like cheating 101. You don't do that. It's just stupid. But that's what I did. And so I'm like giving it away completely, like looking, you know, like at the, and the teacher makes eye contact with me and just like, I know you're cheating. Like I felt it. And then he gets up, and it was the longest ten, 10 seconds of my life walking over to me. It just felt terrible. And I got caught. Pulled me out of class. Every one of you has gotten caught for everything you've ever done. You can't hide anything from Jesus Christ, even things you've never told anyone. You've never told your spouse. You've never told your best friend. Jesus knows. He looks you in the eye. Probably the way he did Peter when Peter betrayed him. And you remember that? We get that detail of like Jesus looked at him across the courtyard and they met eyes. What did that feel like? Oh. He looks at all of us that way. We're caught red-handed in everything. There's nothing that we can hide. His eyes are like a flame of fire. They look into your mind, into your heart, where no one else can look. That same Jesus who catches you in every sin you've ever done loves you. He loves you. 
the good news of Christianity is that you are fully known and you are fully loved. You are fully known and you are fully loved. At the cross, it was all accounted for. We sang it this morning. My sin, not in part, but the whole, all of it, accounted for at the cross. That's what made it so painful for our Lord. That's why he was the only one could do, who could do it. Can you atone for your own sin? Anybody, raise your hand. I can't. But Jesus can, and he did. It is because he sees you at your darkest, at your worst, morally naked. That's why you can trust you are safe in his arms. If he doesn't know everything, guys, he didn't die for everything. And if he didn't die for everything, then you should not feel safe. You should feel scared. Praise God he did. All of it. Sins you're not even conscious of. Nailed to the cross. Hear the good news. He is the propitiation for our sins. Meaning all of them. He propitiated them. He took them upon himself and bore the wrath. This wrath. The fury of the winepress, of the wrath of God, the Almighty, He took for you. When is the last time you just thanked Him for that? When is the last time you got on your knees and you said, thank you, Jesus, for saving me from the wrath of God? That's a good prayer. Thank you for saving me from this. This is real. Like, some of you think this is a, like, oh, this is mythic. This is, this is a fairy tale. This is real. Therefore, brothers and sisters, listen to me. Listen to me. You don't have to hide. You don't have to paint yourself in a better light. You don't have to be anxious about what people think of you. How many of you are anxious about what people think of you? The cross just says, no, no more of that. Nope. I know you fully. I know everything about you. I know what you've done. I know what you've thought. And I love you. And I came for you. And I died for you. You don't have to worry about what anybody else thinks. Because what I think is you are my child. You are my son. You are my daughter. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never abandon you. You cannot sin your way out of my love. So live free. You are free. Be honest. What are we hiding from? Your sins and failures with each other, with the Lord, be honest. He already knows. Isn't it easier to tell somebody something that's embarrassing when they already know? He knows, and it's already consumed by his grace. Verse 12. Look at it with me. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dripped, sorry, dipped in blood, 
This is day of the Lord language. So if you read the prophets, what do you keep bumping into? Day of the Lord, day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. This is it. Isaiah 63 says, I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their blood splattered on my garments for the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. It's the day of the Lord. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. Little side note, nerdy thing. This is the only place in the New Testament where that phrase is actually found. Not even in John 1. Let's camp on a name no one knows but himself. I think this is a level of intimacy with Jesus reserved for the new creation. The greatest privilege of anyone's life is to know God. That is the great privilege of your life if you do know God. And there are many of you who have walked with God and know God a a lot more deeply than I do. And yet, even for the most mature Christian, there is something reserved for eternity. There is a level of fellowship and intimacy and delight and knowing that is reserved for eternity. We just don't know it now. As good as it can be, it's going to get better, a lot better. Because this name of Jesus... It's not for now. You can't know it now. But I think, I think what the text is saying is it will be known. You will know a name that we don't know now that brings you further into knowing Jesus. <coughs> and Revelation 2 says that if you conquer the world, he will give you a name that only you know and he knows. This is just intimacy. It's it's. it's I think probably um, the closest thing is a marriage. It's just deep intimacy, deep knowing, deep in tune with each other. If you're not married, there's probably somebody in your life that you just feel in tune with. You feel tight with, you feel close with, you just know them. It's like you finish each other's sentences kind of a thing. It doesn't have to be romantic in any way. I think... We want to know the Lord as deeply as we can now, but there's going to be a level of intimacy to come that's even deeper that we can't even really imagine right now. Second point, Jesus' conduct at his coming. That was his character. Now his conduct, what he does. Verse 14. And the armies of heaven, that's you, folks, With the holy angels, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now, this makes me a little nervous because I don't don't know how to ride a horse. Somehow I will, apparently. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. (coughs) He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, on his robe, on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings. Lord of Lords. So if you can picture a man sitting on a horse, try to approximate that. Is that right? This? The sword is hanging down, okay, on his belt, and then on his thigh, you've got the name. So that when he's riding the horse, slaying, you know, two-edged sword, 
You know who you're dealing with. Doesn't get blocked. You can see this is the King of Kings, this is Lord of Lords, written on his thigh. It's battle imagery. Guys, if you if you like ever could get behind Jesus, this is the week to do it, okay? This is a battle. It's a war. It's gory. It's bloody. It's action. You want more action? I mean, how many times do we keep our kids from watching movies that are far less violent than this? Pretty violent. So, men, if you can't get behind Jesus this week, I don't know if it's going to happen. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and and the flesh of all men, this is all unbelievers, both free and slave, both small and great. Two suppers in chapter 19. Did you pick up on that? You either eat the meal or you are the meal. Tracking with that? You either are invited to partake of a great banquet or you are invited to be the great banquet. Which side are you on? Whose side do you want to be on? It's real. Do not doubt God's word. Verse 19, And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on a horse and against his army. And where's the battle? Where's the detail? Like I want some back and forth and I want some detail on this battle, some drama. But the outcome is so certain we don't get any details. It's just Jesus shows up and says, anyone who opposed me and my people, banished forever. It's over. Not a lot of drama. I mean, if you made a movie out of it, you'd have to spice it up. You'd have to give it, you have to fill it in because it's so decisive. It's so easy for Jesus in his power. But there's no battle. There is a battle, but there's no battle. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So, side point here, I think this adds evidence to the conclusion that the beast, the false prophet, the great prostitute, are not singular persons in history. Not looking for just one False prophet, one beast, one prostitute. If they were just one person, Jesus would have killed them. Like all the other people that it says right here are slain on the battlefield. Why would he spare them the first death and just give them the second death? Everybody else gets physical death, the first death, and second death. Eternal death in the lake of fire. So I think more likely, beast, false prophet, great prostitute, these are institutions, cultures, many people. Yeah, they, they are people, but many people over the course of history leading up to Jesus' return. And maybe there's a great manifestation or representation at the end, probably. 
But I think what we're dealing with in terms of throne alive is trans-temporal ideas. Okay? This is just a side point. We'll come back to it next couple of weeks. But And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds. This is Old, te- te- Old Testament covenant curse language. All the birds were gorged with their flesh. How do so many people end up here? How does this happen? You know there's going to be a lot more people in hell than there is in heaven. The Bible teaches that. How does that happen? C.S. Lewis wrote, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, the soft underfoot. No sudden turnings, no milestones, no signposts. The road to hell is very ordinary. It's usually not dramatic. I don't think most people wake up one day and say, Hear ye, hear ye, I decide. Not with God. I don't think that's the way it happens typically. It's not a dramatic moment of decision. I'm going to follow the devil. And I don't want anything to do with this Jesus person. I think the road to hell is simply nurtured selfishness over time. Day by day, decision by decision, I just nurture my selfishness. I like it. I want more of it. It feels good. This is autopilot for the human race. There's roughly 350,000 babies being born today. They are all born on autopilot. And the destination is hell. The road to get there is very ordinary, very simple. It's easy. It's the easy path. There's no effort required. Just living your life like a lazy river, just taking you downstream until you get to a cliff and you go over the cliff that you didn't see coming, that you didn't think would ever come. That's the road, friends, you have to watch out for. Not so much the big dramatic moment, but the slow, ordinary, nurtured selfishness over time. How many men and women just in the Midwest have taken that road to hell? Anyone you know on that road? Any family? Any friends? Probably some here today who are on that road. Nice people on cruise control heading for a cliff. I saw a story recently about a man in Europe who was raising pet lions in his house. He named them, he raised them, he fed them, he took them on walks with a leech around his neighborhood. This is Eastern Europe, so. My children got comfortable with two lions, and you'll be shocked to learn that one day they ate him. 
because that's what lions do. If you get comfortable with your sin, it is like that. One day, it will kill you. It is an apex predator. That's what it does. That's its nature. That's the nature of sin. You get comfortable with it, it will kill you. I don't know when exactly, but it will. I can tell you that for certain. What does it look like? Well, it's very normal. It's very respectable. You know, you take it for a walk. It's, you know, you got it on a leash. Everything's under control. Bitterness slowly cultivated. Jealousy gradually accepted. Lust day by day fostered. Addiction progressively cherished. Anger bit by bit holding on to. Christian community slowly but surely pushed away and abandoned. This is the ground upon which people walk to hell. It's not dramatic. It's very ordinary. It's very normal. Watch out. Be careful. Christianity, friends, is the great turning of a life. It's a great turning where at first it seems like it's just an inch. It's just barely. But over time, it's miles apart at the finish. This is the great work of God to make you new. You become new. It is supernatural. It is radical. And it is true of every believer who has even a mustard seed of faith. It's not the quantity of our faith, guys. It's the quality Is it looking outside of myself to Jesus? If that's true for you, you are a new creation. Oh, you have been born not of flesh, not of blood, but of water in the Spirit. The old has gone, the new has come. You are a new life, crucified with Christ and raised with Him to new life. You are not the same. You are of the stuff of heaven, of the new creation inside of you from the inside out. This is who you are. It is radical. It is supernatural. So, are you in the fight? This is how you know if you're a Christian. Are you in the fight? Does most days feel like an uphill battle, like you're walking uphill? This is hard. This is, I'm tired. I am weary of this fighting my sin. And, you know, we get discouraged by that, like, oh, my gosh, when is this going to be? Praise God, you're not on autopilot. That is amazing. That means you are new. If you are not on autopilot, you are a new creation in Christ Jesus, and you are going to heaven. Don't be discouraged. Let that encourage you. If there's no fight, if it's easy to do what you know is wrong, you're not a Christian. If you're on autopilot cruise control, this is where you're headed. Please turn. Please turn. You need to fall down on your knees and you need to say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. 
And the only way for me to change is you. Please help me. Please help me. And you know what? We will. We will. Every person that has ever knocked on his door, he's answered the door. All who seek, find. Matthew 7, 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Seek to enter by the narrow gate. It's hard. But oh, is it worth it. <laughs> you want this and I want this to be the best day of your life when Jesus returns. I don't want it to be the worst day. And it will unless you repent and you believe. Father, I pray for those who have turned, that they might be encouraged, that they might stay in the fight, that they might not give in to their sin. That, Lord, when they do fall, when they do slip up, they would remember you are committed to them, and they would run toward you and not away from you for forgiveness for every and any sin. And I pray, Lord, that those who have not turned, that by your grace and by your spirit, today would be the day. Now would be the time. This is the year of redemption that you have ordained, so may they not waste it. Lord, we want them to be there. I want them to be there. Please have mercy. In Jesus' name.